0: Hello, and welcome to the STEM Tea Podcast, the series all about the latest in social, societal, and scientific developments in STEM, from establishing health and productive research environments to navigating difficult conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm your host, Assistant Professor of the Department of Molecular Physiology and Biophysics at Vanderbilt University, Antonor Hinton Jr. And in this podcast series brought to you by Biotechniques, I share my advice on mentoring, expanding cultural humility, and cultural competency in the lab, and speak to a different guest each week to explore their research and how they work to improve DEI and STEM. Also each week, I will have a guest on, Dr. Christina Termini of Fred Hutch, or Dr. Heiseta Schuler of Winston-Salem State, or another secondary guest that will provide insight on a very specific topic. These individuals will also enhance the environment of which we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion from different cultural and traditional spaces that I am not exposed to myself. So I hope that you'll come learn and enjoy the podcast in a way that's going to invite a nourishing STEM environment that we all can prosper in, and celebrate diversity, equity, inclusion, and make it transformative and not performative. So my first question is, can you tell us a little bit about
1: yourself and then what particular faculty positions you hold? So first, I just wanna thank you for the invitation. I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. As for our viewers, you and I have known each other for a good amount of years and just, I really admire all the work that you do. And so I was super excited to see this invitation come across my email. So a little bit about myself. I am an assistant professor at Howard University College of Medicine in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics. I'm a tenure track professor that is going up for tenure this year. So hopefully that is, you know, just in a couple months, hopefully I should be a tenured associate professor. i i am a former faculty at Johns Hopkins Medicine on the College of Medicine, Department of Endocrinology. I was there for a little over five years, started as a postdoc, was a postdoc for a couple of years, then went on to adjunct faculty for about three years. I'm also a visiting professor at Georgetown Medicine, and I did a visiting professorship actually at Imperial College London. So I was in London for About three months this past summer, and and still working on the project. We're looking to actually get a paper out on some of that work that I did with my colleagues out there.
2: Thanks so much for that introduction about your many accolades there. I'm curious as well about your research program. Can you tell us a bit about your research accomplishments and contributions to science, and a little bit about the work that you're currently doing as well?
1: Yeah, so my research lab focuses on understanding mechanisms of insulin resistance, particularly kind of looking at crosstalk between different avenues of how one might develop insulin resistance. So we've, you know, both looking at that from the animal models and cell models, as well as clinical models of really investigating that question of learning more about different mechanisms of insulin resistance more specifically to that is i'm looking at a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS and some of my work at hopkins discovered this new pathway of how women develop insulin resistance that is obesity independent so it's driven by androgen particularly or specifically in the liver so we've created several knockout liver specific knockout models to further investigate you know what's going on in females with high androgen before and you know as they gain weight so you know women with PCOS very early on sometimes they'll be you know normal weight uh, but over time they tend to gain weight and we're looking at that you know what's going on in those earlier stages of PCOS so in our clinical work we're looking at women From four different groups, normal weight, normal androgen, normal weight, high androgen, obese, normal androgen, and obese, high androgen. And we're hypothesizing that the normal weight, high androgen will have more metabolic complications than the obese, normal androgen. And that will lean to really point to some of the animal work that we have shown that androgens are playing a more significant role than lipids or obesity in the disease pathway of PCOS and insulin resistance in PCOS. That was kind of long.
2: <laughs> oh, you're doing a lot of research, it sounds like. Along those lines, we saw that you had a recent publication in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, and we're interested to learn a little bit more about that project specifically and kind of what the future directions are for that work as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so JCEM is journal. <laughs> yeah, so that was a paper, it was looking at PCOS and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. and you know part of what i didn't mention with the clinical study that i talked about is it's only in black women so we're we're starting specifically looking in black women and that ties into this work from the jcem paper where we really did a meta analysis looking at metabolic complications in pcos and you know one of the things that we found was that most of the studies are on white and asian women and it leaves out you know there's very few studies in Latinx and Black individuals. And then a lot of these studies, you know, their discussion section mentions some kind of clinical implications towards what they found. And they're like, you should do this to treat PCOS, but it was only in their study was only in white women. And then you know we found that the metabolic features or presentations within PCOS women vary by ethnicity. So We know that there's these differences, but yet we're telling the clinical field to treat us as if all of them are white. So that's an issue. And, you know, we we've kind of pointed to that. And that's actually something we specifically wrote it for PCOS and Apple. But of course, we also found those kind of challenges in many other disease research on many other diseases as well. So I wanted to kind of keep a long research, but kind of transition
0: into that mentorship, because this is something that Tina and I very much care about. And we were wondering what type of mentoring practices do you use on a daily basis? And also, who's inspired you to be that amazing mentor that we know that you are?
1: Yeah, so great transition. <laughs> I'm actually starting up my summer research like projects and bringing on some summer researchers. And this is a time at Howard University, it's very much a uh, I think, you know, a lot of researchers pick up a little bit in summer, but very different than like my experience at Hopkins compared to here. Hopkins is pretty much, you know, the research is high all year round, whereas at Howard, it certainly is a uptick in research productivity over the summer. So I have, I think, seven folks coming in, (laughs) a pretty hefty amount of trainees coming in for starting up in summer. And I have some texts that are helping that a bit that are there all year round. And one of my texts that started up, she was just jokingly saying, you know, are you going to do with you know all the new trainees what you did with me? Which is, you know, she felt there was a number of experiments where she like made some mistakes or didn't do it quite right. And I kind of like to just throw folks into the water and let them believe in themselves is what I found to be kind of valuable, at least. For me, it's not that I let them drown or anything like that. I just I want them to come to this place where they can believe in themselves. And they also understand that making mistakes is not the end of the world. Some of the greatest discoveries were mistakes or, you know, not what the person hypothesized the experiment was going to result from or, you know, the result that they hypothesized. So like mistakes are actually a good thing in science like you can learn a lot from not doing it the right way the first time so that's one aspect of how i like to mentor is really give people some autonomy and give them some independence like teach them and teach them well up front but then you know i'm not a hand holder i want people to feel that they have some autonomy independence to think and change things up maybe the way we're doing a procedure is not like there's a faster, better, more effective way. And I want to give them the opportunity to be able to find that. And so that's one of the ways that I'm to
0: That's really beautiful. I like that way a lot. You know, I think Tina actually has a question she wanted to ask about following up. But I'm going to ask one more. So could you give us an experience where your mentoring practice has really changed how someone's critical thinking Has occurred and how it's blossomed because they had that independence to be able to be okay at, you know, failing. Can you talk about that? Because I think a lot of times individuals think that you have to be perfect in science. You have to do things, you know, the way that they're done over and over again. And if you don't get this, you're a failure. We often don't celebrate a lot of the times what's
1: happening in the context of just discovery. Yeah. So the particular student that I have in mind. She's in medical school now at Howard, and she was my tech for about a year and a half before she started up in the medical school. And she had applied to school a couple of times and failed in her, you know, kind of way of seeing it. And, you know, it was, I think, through lab, she discovered that, you know, those weren't failures. Those were opportunities to make her application that much stronger and make her that much stronger of a medical student. And I think, you know, now she went through the first year of Howard, she was near the top of her class. So after, you know, having these thoughts of I'm a failure, I'm not good enough. I think she's reframed a little bit of her thinking of how to approach, you know, failing, quote unquote. And so I think she's really taken the opportunity to, through her experiences in the lab, to like see failure as an opportunity. To better yourself and and take it on as that challenge, and I think that she's you know used that approach to be a strong medical student.
2: This is a really good point, and I think <laughs> that perfectionism can be absolutely debilitating in the lab and in your life. And you know, from reading about you as well, I saw your discussion on humanity and it kind of goes in line with this concept of humility as well. and I think that's a really important concept that, mentors don't often teach, right? Because there's no like curriculum on this is what humanity is. And, you know, I think what you're discussing is kind of this concept of not just teaching the science, but teaching life skills and teaching so much more than that. And I think it's really important that, you know, you're kind of educating, not just the scientific level, but really on these other concepts. And I'm curious how else you kind of integrate this discussion and this concept of humanity into your training of different students and different trainees in your group?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think to answer it, I want to give a little bit of background as to why that approach is even something that I have taken, I think. So, you know, I have experienced failure at, you know, and air quotes again, at what some people And for a lot of people, particularly people that look like me, Black and Brown individuals don't bounce back from this type of failure that I've encountered. And that is, I am a formerly incarcerated person with three felony convictions. I was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a prior and persistent career criminal, and it was a mentor of mine. So going into the carceral system and looking at 10 years in prison feeling very much like this failure and that life was over, I was fortunate enough to have this mentor kind of not see failure in that way and saw it, you know, really encouraged me to see it as this opportunity to become a better person and really encouraged me to continue pushing forward and saw this talent and skills and intelligence being used differently and and really invested in that. So, you know, I think that has been embedded in me that, you know, you can rise up from failure, what some people perceive to be irreparable types of situations, which, you know, the prosecutor in my situation, I'm a Black kid coming from the Ferguson, Missouri area, which of course, a lot of people know about Ferguson, Missouri now. But, you know, back in this particular time, it was just another area of North St. Louis that, you know, folks didn't like to visit. And, you know, prosecutor saw a kid like myself coming from that area and said, most of the kids that come from that area, this is where they belong in prison. And, you know, this is going to be your future. So this mentor kind of saw a different perspective and helped me paint a different picture of myself. So I've certainly taken that and utilized that throughout my mentoring experiences but that's also to answer your question how i view mentoring as this seeing the whole person and seeing the humanness and the humanity in individuals and really encouraging my students to really see their full selves as well like and know that like in the relationship that i embark on with them i'm not just about seeing their growth As a scientist, as a medical student, as a a trainee, I really try to invest in them as a person, as a human being, as a person that will come to work sometimes and has some things on their mind that is really weighing down on them. For that reason, like, you know, one example of how I really bring humanness into the mentoring relationship, the start of all of our lab meetings, journal clubs, no matter what, you know, when we first encounter each other in the lab in person, it's we spend a good 10 minutes just asking about how everyone's doing. What's new? Like, tell me something new or exciting or something that you're just going through right now. And, you know, sometimes that takes up a little bit more than 10 minutes. But what I've found is that when you take the time to do that, you, you know, you're asking someone to come in and focus on pipetting and, and doing all these things, and they're, you know, going through a difficult time in, in a relationship outside of work. Like, how can they really focus that energy on pipetting if, you know, their mind isn't there? So giving that little bit of investment in who they are as a human usually refocuses them. And now they're actually pipetting even better than, which <laughs> if you didn't go through that. So, I mean, it's actually worthwhile to take those moments and acknowledge a person's humanity and, you know, their full self.
2: Yeah. And I think that's so important as well, because mentoring really is a two-way street. And if you want people to be open with you, well, why would they be open with a stranger? You know, you have to develop a mentoring relationship with people. And, you know, if you want them to really trust you scientifically as well, well, you want them to trust you kind of in that full sense. And I think that that's often missing. And, And I've definitely had many mentoring experiences where I was the mentee and I kind of realized, okay, this is transactional, like over here, this, I'm not going to get all of that over, you know, that full relationship from this person, but over here, this person really cares about me and wants me to do well. And this is the person that I can tap into for that. And it just makes for a more productive relationship for both people, I think. So I'm curious as well, like how you kind of learned that from your own experience as a mentee as well.
1: Yeah. So I think, Life experiences. I was fortunate enough to have this mentor that I mentioned while I was incarcerated really helped me see my value and potential and helped me get back into school. That mentor happened to be on the admissions committee of St. Louis University, where I ended up getting into. I was rejected from every other school I applied to. I have a pretty good degree of certainty that it was because I had to check the box that I had a criminal conviction. One of the places I actually mentioned that it was because of that, they couldn't offer me any type of scholarships because of that. So I got in and this mentor helped me get in. And then I actually ended up getting a PhD mentor that really took the same approach, my approach of throwing them into the water and giving them autonomy and independence, but also being there to help them make sure that they don't drown, is the approach that he took. And I was, you know, that was very helpful for the type of like mentoring that I needed. I was, you know, motivated because I, you know, I just come from doing this period of incarceration and I was really motivated to be this different person and thirsty and hungry for change. So I was very driven. I actually ended up at the top of my class and my PhD studies. So, you know, I didn't need handholding. So his mentoring Technique actually helped me become who I am now, this independent researcher at a very early stage. And then, you know, that's in contrast to a mentor that I had at Johns Hopkins as my postdoc mentor, who she was a young investigator herself. She just moved into being an assistant professor. I was her first postdoc, and she was starting up a lab, and I was actually starting up the lab with her. It was great in that I had her as my direct mentor. But the lab was actually situated in this like super lab where the directors of the department were these like super scientists, you know, (laughs) Sally Radovic and Fred Wundersford. So they are type of the hands off because they have so many people underneath them. So I was kind of getting a little bit of both, this very hands on person who was my direct mentor, then the hands off. But what it really made me realize is that my direct mentor, I couldn't come to her like when I was having a challenge with my partner, for instance, and like, like my mind is not here because I'm struggling personally. I couldn't come to my mentor for that. But she really helped me like, become this amazing scientist. She was fantastic at helping me know the science, but I could not rely on her. She tried to dabble in that space, but she it just wasn't her strong suit. To be this person that could be very personable and do what I just mentioned, like open up every conversation and waste, in her mind, it would be wasting 30 minutes to ask me about like, Stan, what's going on with your partner? She's like, get to pipe at it, you know, is her perspective. So I learned very early on that you need, and this is something that I actually teach, is you shouldn't, your mentor, we call them mentors in science, but they're really not mentor. What she was to me was a coach. She taught me how, just like a basketball coach can teach you how to shoot a good free throw, she taught me how to be a good scientist. She coached me in science. She was a fantastic coach, but she was not a mentor in that she didn't really, you know, it wasn't her strong suit to navigate my personal relationship. So I teach my mentees that you should have a mentoring team. You should have coaches on your team. You should have mentors who are people who understand you personally personally who also could be coaches, but they also have that extra bit of knowing you personally. You need sponsors on your team who are people like Sally and Fred. Sally and Fred didn't know anything about my project, really, although I was underneath them. But they can introduce me to presidents and deans and and say, Stan does great work. He's in my lab. I don't really know what he does, but he does great work. And that will get me into a room, you know. So you need sponsors, you need mentors, you need coaches. And you need them in multiple aspects of who you are as a person, for the gym, to work out, for relationships, for science. And that's the approach that I really, you know, embody and tell my, don't only lean on me to be your mentor, like find these other people that will help you be your whole self and the best version of your whole self.
0: So, you know, I just must share. So Tina and I are like talking in the background about how amazing this is. And so we had like a a little laugh. So I know you didn't probably saw on screen, even though like we're not showing our faces, like what are they laughing at? And we were laughing because I was like, dang, he's saying everything that's supposed to be said. And it's like, he just like paraphrased, like he lifted out of the articles that we That we've done in the past. And I was like, this is so great. I was like, this is like what people should really like get if they don't get anything else that they need to just like from this first segment before we transition into what's the most important part of why we're here. I hope that they could just take that last like question and just like plaster it like this is what you should live life by, like when you're mentoring. So like it was amazing. Mm -hmm. I know that you've had a lot of external mentors, and I wanted to also talk a little bit, this is our kind of last science-y-like question before we transition into the meat of things. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Endocrine Society. That's where we met, and you've been playing a pivotal role there. You've been on, you know, a lot of interviews, you know, Mm -hmm. so for the audience, if you don't know, he's been on NPR, the big NPR, PBS, you know, just to name a few, right? But he's also been very active in advocating research and also just his program that's in the Endocrine Society. And the interview was amazing. So I was wondering if you could talk about the Endocrine Society, you know, what programs you've participated in and what you're doing now. And then could you kind of introduce us to two of the commentaries that you've done so we can transition right into Your main work, that's just absolutely amazing. The two commentaries, if you don't know, were everybody was in Nature Reviews and Endocrinology. The other one was in Med, which is a big journal at Cell Press. So if you remember me talking about this before, remember the Oscars are equivalent to like what I believe is nature and cell articles. So he's had a couple of Oscars already, you guys. So just to kind of give you some reference, if you're not listening and you're not familiar with some of the journals that he's in, could you kind of share your thoughts around these? Yeah. So
1: the first part of the endocrine society and my connections. So I really attribute, you know, the endocrine society as well as the American physiological society, those two I would be remiss to say one and not say the other. So I have to mention both. But they both helped me find my science identity. It was one of the main things that I think I attribute to those experiences very early on, particularly, and like when we met, you and I. So I was part of the FLARE program of the Endocrine Society. And, you know, this is my experience. You know, I'm coming out of prison and now I'm thrown into this place where I'm in. Amongst scientists, And I'm like, do I really fit in? And, you know, for me, my experience was coming from prison. But even if you remove coming from prison, just being Black or a person of color in science, it's like, do I really fit into this? And Flair helped me feel like seeing people that look like me, I felt as if I fit in and and belong. So, you know, this sense of belonging that I was looking for, my mentors were doing a great job at helping me feel like I belong. I mentioned how I had these great mentors, but flair and the endocrine society kind of really helped solidify like, I am this endocrine scientist. And that's, you know, that's what, when I introduced myself, that's, you know, one of the things I introduced myself as, and it's the endocrine society that has empowered me to feel like I am this expert in endocrine. Like, This is what I do. And, you know, I I don't think that without those early experiences, I could have effectively moved into feeling that way and being where I am now without having those experiences that the Endocrine Society helped me see myself as. So, you know, I was on the cover of the Endocrine Society's journal and did a piece with them where I talked about that and talked about how pivotal the Endocrine Society was. And helping me see who I was and be who I am. And then, you know, I I also talk about the nonprofit that I started, which is from prison cells to PhD. And I, you know, that article was also right around when I was releasing my memoir, which is titled from prison cells to PhD, it's never too late to do good. So, you know, I talk a little bit about that, the book, as well as the nonprofit really tie right into what I've been mentioning about mentoring. The idea behind the book and the nonprofit are both. So individuals who have experienced challenges such as incarceration, but really, you know, any types of challenges, it's about being able to connect to mentoring and support systems to move yourself to believing in you again, and what it takes to kind of internally make that shift of feeling as if you're at the bottom. This is where you will always be to seeing yourself as belonging and fill in the blank for the community you're trying to belong in that, you know, thinks that, you know, there's powers that be that say people that look like you shouldn't be in this community. And that's what the book and the organization does. It helps people see and create this systematic path of helping them see how they belong, particularly, of course, in higher education and, and professional careers is what we are striving to help people do. And my commentary in Nature and Cell, I also had one in Science. So I've actually had one in the full CNS. <laughs> but all of them, I really like the title of the Nature one. I really like the title of all of them. <laughs> But the Nature one is called We Demand a Seat at the Table. And, you know, it opens up with saying we demand a seat at the funding table, the high impact journal table, the reviewers table, the NIH study section table. And, you know, it goes through saying how you don't usually see people that look like me at those tables. And particularly with the experiences that I have and I I go through actually and propose the idea that why don't you see as many black and brown individuals in those spaces? And I offer some ideas as to why that might be. I also propose the idea, and this is something I sat on the NIH scientific workforce diversity group that is a liaison or advocates to the director of NIH about how to increase scientific diversity. And I propose to that group that they actually include incarcerated individuals and formerly incarcerated individuals as a disadvantaged group. So they can get the benefits that places like NIH offer to specific programming towards that group. So yeah, those are a few of the things about those commentaries.
2: No, that's a great idea. And I'm so glad that you were on that session because they need people to speak up about that and be that seat at the table. But you need more than a seat. I think there needs to be like several benches at these tables. <laughs> <laughs> Along those lines, we noticed in one of your commentaries, you also discussed this concept of band the box. And I actually hadn't realized that Pell Grants are, are not, or individuals who have been incarcerated are not eligible for Pell Grants. And I can just say as a recipient of a Pell Grant, how important that was for me being able to go to undergrad and have that additional layer of funding. So I'm wondering if you can discuss a little bit about that and, and you know why this is so important.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. It's a big part of, you know, so our organization is set up with several different branches. We have a programming branch where we get about 400 applications per year from currently and formerly incarcerated individuals from across the country. We work with about 100 people per year to help them. Our mission statement, the phrase and wording is to help people what criminal convictions excel beyond what society has said to be the norm. So the norm for people who've been to prison is get out, like do something with your hands, construction, that's all you're ever good for. You weren't very smart in high school. So we want to change that narrative. A lot of the work that we do throughout the different branches of the nonprofit is changing the narrative. So at the program level, we're working directly with people to change that narrative. But we have a policy branch of the work that we do where we're also looking to change the narrative and, you know, this piece, the Pell restoration, as we call it, is, is one of the things that we fought for and banned the box is another thing to remove the criminal conviction question from applications of job and, and school and federal aid or FAFSA. And the history behind that in 1990. So, you know, we incarcerate more people than any other country in the entire world. When we think about other countries like Russia, which is of course, very heavily in the news and China and North Korea, we're constantly talking about how terrible they treat their people. We not only have the highest rate of incarceration, we have the highest rate of solitary confinement, which by UN standards is considered to be torture. So, you know, we are torturing our people and, you know, we don't necessarily ever phrase it in that way in society. And as you've just mentioned, So we don't hear about things like taking Pell out out of prisons, because, you know, for four decades now, since the war on drugs, you know, that Richard Nixon really started, every successive president has really embodied tougher laws that have incarcerated more people until about the Obama administration, where things have kind of plateaued, but are still enormously, incredibly high in terms of the, the incarceration rate. So as presidents were adding more policies to make more people incarcerated in 1994, the Clinton crime bill, which was one of the worst at changing laws like the crack versus powder, you know, hard versus powder cocaine laws and how the disparities, you know, same amount of the drug can get you 10 times more of a sentence if it's the hard version so a lot of people know about that, but what they don't know is that 94 Crime Bill also took Pell Grants away from incarcerated people. So for about several decades, people inside prison were actually getting bachelor's, master's, even doctorate degrees while they were in prison. And, you know, so coming back to society with tools in their hands to be successful contributing members of society. And in 94, we decided to take that out of prison because we were on this march to make prison solely punitive and warehouse bodies, and you know we're just now starting to see that that's not very helpful for the community. Because if you put someone in who you consider to be a bad person, you give them absolutely nothing. In fact, you cage them like a dog, and then you let them out ten years later. What do you think? Like, what is that person going to be doing? Is that person is the community safer now that you release this person? You know. So you know we've made the argument and changing the narrative that like, you thought you were doing something good by locking them away and only punishing them and warehousing them and caging them up. But it's not, like it would be more productive to our society if you actually gave them tools. And you know, Pell is one of those things that can help, you know, Pell grants don't solely have to go to college degrees, they can go to certifications like plumbing and electrician and different things of that nature. So it's opening the doors. We, after 25 years of advocacy, our organization started something called Unlock Higher Education, which is a coalition of other forces to really center the voices of directly impacted and formerly and currently incarcerated people. And we've successfully passed Pell just recently. That was a long explanation, but you know, since this no, in the science community, it's, I think they needed a little bit of history on, on incarceration. Yes,
2: Don't we need to that. hear it. No apology needed exactly. on that.
0: Exactly. So I have another question. I really want to talk about how you can translate this into actual data. So for a lot of people that you don't know, you know, his organization is just not one thing. It's multifaceted. So they also do a lot of consulting as well. And then he takes that consulting and he's able to create experiences for individuals so that they can improve their work environments. And the reason I'm talking about this is because, you know, when I met Stan, he was very different. And what I mean by that is like, he also thought in business as well. And it was the first time that I actually got open to like, oh, you can have more than a PhD In the traditional sense, not just like an MSTP program, you can have a PhD and MBA. And it really opened my mind. He's actually what sparked the original thought of me having a consulting company. And what I really find interesting is that you can use government organizations like the NSF to not only empower individuals to have this experience, but also create data that can go back into science and advocate. So I want you to talk about your NSF grant that was awarded, I believe, in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, for $5.2 million. And I want you to kind of talk about the premise of it, what you guys are doing with the money and where you're taking it, you know, the community to learn more about the STEM education for individuals that have been to prison, but that doesn't
1: define them. Yeah, so we were fortunate to be one of the co-recipients of $5 million plus dollar grant from the National Science Foundation, multi-year, multi-organization grant with Princeton, Vanderbilt Education Development Center, which is a global nonprofit around education, and another smaller nonprofit called Operation Restoration that is also a formerly incarcerated led Black female that leads that group. It all spawned from a keynote that I gave at a conference called the National Conference of Higher Education in Prison. It's the convening of people that think about things like Pell and how do we change the narrative around incarceration. And I offered the idea that one, we need to be pushing for more STEM degrees. Like most of the college in prison, it's like, you know, even though these folks are trying to help people in prison, they're still bringing their own stigmas by saying, well, you know, they've gotten past the part of, well, you're not only good with your hands, like you don't need to be in construction, but you need to be like, a drug rehab counselor because you have drug problems. So like, why don't you be a, you know, a counselor? So a lot of the college and prison programming is in the humanities and things like counseling. There's still these perceptions that like, you couldn't be smart enough to be a scientist. You know, you couldn't be smart enough to be in STEM and physics, like those types of things, you're not, you weren't smart enough. So although people are helping they're still kind of hurting the space because they're saying that I know what you need. And the majority of those people that were saying, I know what you need to be doing, were non-formally incarcerated people themselves. So like the directors of these programs are, you know, passionate academics and professors that like, I want to start a college and prison program at my university, but they've never been incarcerated. So my keynote offered this idea that We should be, you know, formally incarcerated people need to be the leaders at the table that are leading, that are getting the money to do this. And then we also need to be pushing for non-humanity degrees and STEM degrees. And from that, a colleague at Princeton was really inspired. She had a NSF grant that was kind of the preliminary grant to this larger grant. And she approached me and asked me to be the lead PI on this and really utilize what i just said and like you know we want to build this thing where formerly incarcerated people are leading it and you know we want you to help us do that and then so we gathered all those folks that i mentioned were on the team that are the actual recipients but then now we have over a hundred organizations and groups that are part of what we call stem ops stem opportunities in prison settings where we're looking to change the narrative and really get more of the whole, you know, broadening participation in STEM from people who are currently and formerly incarcerated.
0: I actually have another question because I really wanna talk about family and how prison can affect family. I was really, like, I really like all your articles, but you know, like, I'm a self-press boy. So, you know, one thing in particular that I really read that resonated with me was about incarcerated mothers and fathers and how that can have an impact on a child's education. So I was wondering, could you talk about the concept of why it's so important that if someone is incarcerated, they are a person that may have a family and that how that can affect the family structure. But then like if you give them the tools, how that also could improve the family structure, even though they've had this type
1: of experience. Yeah. So just as we know, the data shows that incarceration is this intergenerational thing. And, you know, Michelle Alexander and her new Jim Crow and things like the 1619 Project from Hannah Nicole Jones and the many authors of that book have let us know that slavery, you know, mass incarceration is this child of slavery. So, you know, in the new Jim Crow, I know I'm again giving like the history behind your question, but, you know, Michelle Alexander does a great job of painting how we've gone from slavery to You know, getting out of Reconstruction and, you know, the Reconstruction was a period in our U.S. history where there was the most black individuals in politics that were senators and U.S. Congress folks and local government. So it was this period where like the most black people that have ever been in positions of power and leadership ever in our country's history. And Jim Crow was a result of like, we can't have that. Right. So it was realizing like, whoa, like this is a problem. And so they've incorporated all these things to like you need to get back in your place. And Michelle Alexander's new Jim Crow is this idea that mass incarceration is this recreation of what was slavery, then Jim Crow and now mass incarceration. So when we think about that, the design of incarceration was designed from slavery and it was designed to be this intergenerational thing that keeps you at the bottom you know, then you can better understand how, when that prosecutor was telling me that she wanted to sentence me to life in prison and that I was going to be in this revolving door of incarceration, what she also meant was that my kids were going to be in this revolving door of incarceration because that's where you belong. That's where society says that you belong. And data shows that like, there's this intergenerational aspect of people who are incarcerated it is just magnitudes about four times more likely that their kids will be incarcerated as well. To the same respect, data also shows that if your parents are in college, it is a stronger chance that you will get into college. So, you know, why don't we break the one intergenerational aspect of incarceration with this other intergenerational aspect, which is college education? So, you know, we talk a lot about how You know, one of the statistics that's another powerful statistic is that 60 to 70 percent of people that step out of prison will end up stepping back into prison within one to three years. So about three out of four people will end up going back to prison. If a person simply steps foot on a college campus after they've gotten out of prison, it drops the chances of going back to prison into the teens. If they get a bachelor's degree, it drops it down to like 13 percent, a master's degree or higher and it nearly eliminates the possibility of that person going back to prison. So higher education is literally, from data, the most powerful way to keep people out of prison, but also it has this intergenerational effect. And you know, the qualitative data behind that that we've gathered, we actually are starting a college and prison program where we simultaneously have the incarcerated people, their family members, zooming into the class to where moms and dads of incarcerated people are taking college classes together because what we actually ended up finding was the incarcerated person going into college and then coming out actually inspired the mom the dad the brothers the sisters the neighborhood friends to like man like he's in college now like I can do that too so it had this like community intergenerational impact as well
2: It's so interesting because I think that, you know, I'm first generation, you know, college graduate, that's become such a highly accepted term and community and group and is well known as a disadvantaged background. So I'm surprised that being, you know, a child of an incarcerated parent, for example, is not considered a disadvantaged background. That to me actually doesn't make any sense because that seems to be based on all the data that you just said. A huge disadvantage, perhaps even worse than, you know, just being educationally disadvantaged. So I think that there really needs to be a push for change in this realm, because the data speaks for itself, everything that you just said. So again, you know, I'm just shocked that that's not already considered a disadvantaged background, because clearly it's all linked together. Right. And why is there not funding to, you know, help these individuals and even the college experience alone, if you're first gen it's a family experience, right? This is the first time, you know, my parents didn't know what I was doing or understand any of this process or even getting into college. So your program speaks to me in that way that, you know, it's creating somewhat of that, that family experience as well, because it really is. And having that support and also just the overall understanding of the experience is so important for ensuring that people get through, because who are you going to talk to about this, right? Right. So I'm really inspired by this.
0: So, you know, I really wanted to talk about a couple of other things before we let you go. One thing is, I don't think people are aware of what the 1619 book may be for some of the international listeners that we have on our podcast. And so could you just kind of like highlight what that is? And then could you transition into your memoir? Because I want to be able to talk about that as well.
1: Yeah. So the 1619 Project is the authors, Nicole Hannah-Jones and many other various authors as well. I think there's close to 20 plus authors. It is called The Origins. I think The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story, I think is the full title, but it proposes this new origin story for our country. A lot of you know, our country was 1776 was when we gained independence and that's the origin of our country in, in the Revolutionary War and that aspect of how we were founded. You know, she provides this data that goes taking our origin back to 1619, where that was the year the first enslaved people were brought from Africa, were kidnapped from Africa and brought here to the U.S. and put on these forced labor camps that, you know, we often call plantations. And she goes through this history of how black Americans are, you know, some of the most patriotic fathers of democracy. And, you know, the work that we've done to be accepted as human beings and citizens of this country were some of the most extraordinary pushes for true democracy and how democracy should work. And she just very compelling book on this new idea of new origin of who we are. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone interested to pick that book up. It's a great read. I would also encourage you to pick up my book from Prison Cells to PhD. It is never too late to do good. The title of the book very much details, you know, my story going from prison to having a PhD. But the book is really it's my story, but it's not about me. It's really about the reader and as I was mentioning, It really goes through the societal, cultural, economical things that are just present in our world for people who find themselves coming from communities like that I came from in Ferguson and predominantly black communities. But you can really insert yourself into a lot of the different situations. And that's what my hope is for the reader is that they see themselves the story and the challenges that they face even if it's not incarceration you know seeing that challenge and really seeing themselves within how to like overcome those types of challenges so the subtitle of the book it's never too late to do good is a phrase that my father used to tell me so my family and I are Haitian we're you know we're immigrants and the first language that you know Haitian Creole was my first language, so you know English was something that I learned kind of later. You know, Haitian Creole was the primary language in my household, It's something that you know still. Just talking to my mom yesterday, of course, for Mother's Day, and you know, I was speaking Creole. But my dad used to tell me, "Il ne jamais tapu bien." which the literal translation is, it is never too late to do good. But what is, you know, sometimes translations don't fully embody what the actual meaning is. And that fuller meaning of what he was saying was, it's never too late for you to reach your full potential. And it's never too late to do the right thing. So he was having these conversations with me as I was getting deeper and deeper into selling drugs, and him trying to, you know, have me see a different life for myself. And, What he was essentially saying is this powerful message for the criminal legal system is that I believe in you. I see and understand what you're going through right now. And I see and understand that you may not be able to see this different person and who you are and your ability to change into that person. But I see it. And I believe that one day you will believe in yourself and see that change in you. And it's a powerful message for the criminal legal system because. Our criminal legal system is a system that sentences people to triple life sentences. Like you are sentenced to three life sentences. So when you die and you're reincarnated, I'm going to lock you back in a cage. And when you die again and come back, I'm going to lock you up again. Like it's crazy. Like, what is a triple life sentence? Why do you need to give me three? So, you know, our system is this thing that we incarcerate and put people in cages for incredibly long periods of time because we don't believe in change. We don't believe in people. We don't believe in humanity. And the book really talks and speaks to that and how we should believe in the power of change and and humanity. Wow. So I'm tearing up a little bit. Like, I think
0: it's really impactful. While you were talking, one of the things that Tina and I were talking about is just like, how amazing your book is. So, just for the audience, so you know that he has a five star rating on Amazon. So, there's not been a bad review at all. So, that's one place you can check it out, or also on audiobooks as well, and also on Google Playbooks as well, just to name a few places that you can actually find the book. And I do encourage you all to read it. It's a very good book. I'm probably going to add it to the faculty book club that I'm in, Let's try to circulate. We did read the 1619 book, and I thought it was also a very powerful book as well, but I also think that they could be read in tandem because they give different perspectives on kind of what's happening in the state of the United States, and then also what could impact the world right because The United States is one of many now that we have world powers. And I think we all need to think about things globally and how messages that are in certain countries could also permeate others and actually can have a reflection on overall humanity and how the growth of humanity is progressing or or regressing, depending on how we're looking at things And one thing that I just wanted to kind of highlight as we're starting to really kind of close this particular podcast is that you can see that the man before you is not the man that was his past. And I think a lot of times we associate everything with what someone's done in their past. And I think that's something that we can learn as mentors is that it's not the mistake of today or tomorrow. It's the potential of what today and tomorrow brings. And a lot of times we forget that. I also want you all to really think about some of the messages that are in social media. One of the most positive messages that I've seen more recently on social media was uh, Stan's post about what his life has been before. And it was really, really nice because he got 25,000 likes talking about you know, what he's been through and where he's at now and how you can help. And so my last point is kind of talking about how can we help as scientists to help your organization? How can we give? Where can we find your organizational website at? Who do we get in contact with to really kind of stay in touch if we're really touched by this mission? Could you tell us a little
1: about that? Sure. So from prison cells to PhD, we are also referred to as P2P or prison to professionals. Our social media handles are at prison, the number two pro. And my social media handle is prof underscore Andres. So Professor Andres. You can certainly find us on different social media. The website is From Prison Cells to PhD. And the contact person is Dr. Mockley Joseph. But, you know, you can just go to our website. There's a contact us form. And If you're interested in any of the work, volunteering or just learning more, certainly reach out to us. So we want to thank you for joining us today. And we usually have a tradition where
0: we ask, what are you drinking before like we leave? Because we're always curious about trying to find out what uh, individual is drinking and why. So I'll go first. So so you kind of can catch on and then let Tina go and then we'll ask you to go. So um, today I'm just drinking water. That's it's just something that I needed to, because I've had a couple of long nights trying to write grants <laughs> and do other things and probably doing it a little too much. So I think coffee might. Give me, you know, too much of a start this time. But Tina, what are you drinking today?
2: That's so, so tame, AJ. But I have coffee, it is gone. And then (laughs) I'll probably have another one when I get off of this because it's quite (laughs) early. But, you know, I love my coffee.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What about yourself? Coffee out of my favorite mug here. Oh, got a bunch of pictures of, of my tiny humans. Actually, this one is just of my three-year-old daughter, who's now three. I also have a four month old son who is calling me right now. Actually, he's waking up from his nap and he's probably hungry. But yeah, coffee, because it's early and I have grants to write and, and things to do. So definitely my morning coffee is is a must. Thank you so very much. And
0: everyone, thank you for listening to STEM Tea, a podcast that's near to me and dear to Tina. And also that you can find not only in the U.S., but also internationally. We hope that you all stay in touch and communicate your thoughts. You know, let us know how we're doing and what you want to see next. And we're really excited about what this podcast has started with. And we hope that it continues to blossom. And please, more than importantly, it's not about us, but it's also about the interviewee that we had today please go out and get his book. One place that you can find it is at Amazon, which I know we all shop at. So it's from prison cells to PhD. So please get it. It's, you can simply type that in and you can find it very well. And then also stay in touch if you want to do research. You know, I think that people don't know is that Stan is a super collaborative individual. He's always looking for new opportunities. And if your line of research fits with his, why not reach out? So, thank you for attending STEM Tea today, and we hope to catch you a little bit later
1: on the next episode.